Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, we will discuss the impact of the American Jobs Plan and the latest on the administration's climate change policy with Douglas Holtzagen. Doug, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here, Kyle. How have you been the last couple of weeks? Uh, living the dream, as always. I mean, this is my favorite <laughs> pandemic. Let's just... <laughs> I mean, hopefully we will soon be in the office together and enjoying happy hours and lunches and all the stuff together as a, as a team That's again. What you think of when you think of going to work. <laughs> we got to talk. I, I don't know why that just popped in my head first, but that's what came first. It is what it is. I think I'm a little hungry right now. That might be part of the issue. But anyways, let's jump right into things. The Biden administration argues that the infrastructure investment in its proposed $2.25 trillion American jobs plan would boost productivity more than enough to offset the damage for new taxes. But research released today from the American Action Forum finds that Biden's plan would not be pro-growth even under the most favorable conditions. Could you tell us a little bit about this study? Yeah, this study dates back to uh, after the election when, um, uh, as a candidate, uh, uh, Joe Biden had promised to raise $3.3 trillion in taxes and then spend this on a variety of of different initiatives, including infrastructure. And I would have back and forth with uh, uh, economists from the left side of the aisle, and I'd say, look, we can agree these taxes are a bad idea, right? And they say, yeah, 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 but, Doug, we're going to spend it on stuff that is so good that it's going to be, uh, on balance, uh, a winner. And so uh, we decided hey, I have to take this seriously, and we hired uh, tax policy uh, analysts, uh, two gentlemen, John Diamond and George Zodro at Rice University, who have a very, very uh, complex uh, economic model uh, for the U.S. economy. And we we literally said, take them at their word, raise the $3.3 trillion in taxes, and then spend it and focus that spending on high productivity infrastructure and R&D. And we didn't put our finger on the scale in any way. We let them look at the literature, decide what the tax impacts would be, what the productivity impacts would be, and uh, what the right way to think about the economy is. And they just came back with the answer. And the answer is, you raise all those taxes and spend it even in the most efficient way you can think of, and the economy is worse off after 10 years. The tax policy damage is too great to overcome because the, the infrastructure is really just not that productive. Uh, on average, the CBO puts private sector investment at 10% rate of return, infrastructure at 5%. So you're really just losing the former and getting the latter, and that's bad news for the economy. Mm -hmm. uh, the way to think about that now is that the American Jobs Plan raises about half that much in taxes but it only spends about a sixth of that much on infrastructure. So you're going to get tax damage and even less boost from the, the infrastructure. So this looks like a, a sort of a, a bad move from the point of view of long-term economic growth and the productivity and real wages that come with it. And, and that's the key. You worry about the growth and productivity and real wages because that's where the vast majority of Americans get their increases in the standard of living. Yeah. I think in an earlier podcast, I remember you also saying that something like these infrastructure projects never are, are always take longer than advertised. So that has to come into play with this as well. Even tougher to, to deal with. Yeah, I mean, uh, always double the length until it's finished and cut the productivity in half and you'll have a good estimate of the reality on, on an infrastructure project. So more details are coming out about the administration's next major spending proposal, um, this one called the American Families Plan, as many of these proposals were included in the Build Back Better plan that they that they came up with. What does AAF study tell us about the potential impact of the next round of spending and tax increases? 
Well, the next round would bring in tax increases on the individual side. The, the American Jobs Plan is exclusively taxing U.S. corporations. Uh, so this would in include raising the top rate, taxing capital gains more heavily at death and during the lifetime and, and uh, a variety of things like that. So if you add that together with the American Jobs Plan, you're getting close to the $3.3 that we have in our study on the spending side. Uh, this isn't infrastructure. This is just more spending, social welfare spending. It's going to be child credits. It's going to be uh, paid family leave. It's going to be things like that. And so you put them together, you, you're getting more taxes and no more infrastructure or productivity. And so the net impact is going to be even more negative for that combined effort than, than just the American Jobs Plan. So on a slightly different note, a key point of contention on President Biden's American Jobs Plan, which he advertises as an infrastructure bill, can it honestly be advertised as infrastructure? I mean, what's a reasonable <laughs> estimate here? You know, you, we've seen members of Congress go on and say different numbers, but how much of the spending do you see as infrastructure and how much is is it something else? So uh, apparently infrastructure is in the eye of the beholder these days, but I think there's, there's, there is an economic line one can draw. Infrastructure is a form of investment. So it has to be something that you spend now for a return in the future and not something which is uh, what economists call consumption. You just buy the Twizzlers and, and eat them and there's no, no payoff in the future, they're gone. Mm -hmm. um, I think we can agree that, that roads and bridges are things like infrastructure and that you get a return from them uh, uh, for a long time. I think we can also agree that home health care is a consumption item. We're, we're getting those health care services right now. And, and, and in between, you have things like broadband. And I, I think broadband probably is 21st century infrastructure, so put that in there. Um, but we also have um, uh, subsidies for manufacturing and, and uh, things like that that really don't look like big investments. So I think a fair reading of it is about a quarter of it could be perhaps uh, labeled infrastructure. So you got something like five or 600 billion, depending on how, where you draw those lines. And, you know, I, I think it's clearly not all. And, and, and it's probably a minority of, of the dollars going out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you started answering my next two questions on, you know, infrastructures in the eye of the beholder here. The underlying question to all of this is what counts as infrastructure? You know, some of the rights say only including roads and bridges and highways. Is that a legitimate reproach? And then on the left, some want to say that anything that helps us live our lives is infrastructure from long-term care, care centers, manufacturing R&D, to clean energy, tax credits are all infrastructure. You know, what are wrong? What, what's wrong with the, these definitions from either side? And is there, you know, I, I think the one on the right is too narrow. I, I, as I said, I think of broadband as 21st century infrastructure. I mean, that's that's the the interstate highway system of the virtual age. And so, yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, but as a clean energy tax credits, no, I don't think so. That's not an, an infrastructure investment. So, you know, too, too broad on the left, too narrow on the right. And, and we're never going to agree exactly where that line is. And, and, I'll, and I'll give you an example why. So economists are boring people. These are only exciting examples I have. Um, we talk about having durable goods and non-durable goods. And included in non-durable goods are your shirts and your shoes. But if you think about it, you don't wear them once and throw them away. You, you know, you wear them for a while. So they are durable at some level, but we've categorized them in the non-durable goods thing. They, they aren't like bricks and mortar. And that, that would be durable stuff. So the same issue is coming up with this infrastructure debate. There are things which have infrastructure-esque qualities to them, but they aren't really what they do with them. And so we're, we're not going to get a clean answer. But I think, I think we should accept the fact that this is not exclusively infrastructure. It is not exclusively devoted toward producing productivity in the future. And to the extent that we're draining it off for other purposes, 
that, that has a cost that we ought to recognize and be willing to accept. And, and my concern more than anything else with the, the way they're approaching this is they are not saying to the American people, hey, this is worth it. We're going to raise these taxes and we're going to have clean energy credits and a cleaner environment. And that environment is worth it. And, and we're going to have that debate on, it, on its own terms and be honest about it. And the American people can decide, yeah, it's worth it. Let's do that. Instead, they're saying there's no trade-off here. This, this is just you spend this money and you get a job. Right. And, and that's misleading. It's not, it's not the way things work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, but but there has to be some sort of a middle ground somewhere along the lines to get infrastructure done. I mean, both sides have talked about doing infrastructure bill for years, um, you know, and what member of Congress does not want to bring home federal infrastructure dollars to their district. I mean, uh, so so what's the bill that gets both Democrats and Republicans on board? We don't know. I think we both suspect it exists and that in a world where there was an agreement that the only way to get any bill was to have both sides agree on what's in it, you could get to that bill. And it would have probably uh, roads, bridges, ports, um, airports. It would have broadband. It would have um, a lot of things. might even have the, the, the electricity charging stations. All that sort of feels like something the private sector should be doing. But, you know, it, it could have a bunch of those things in it. We're just not getting that kind of a, a genuine negotiation because Democrats are always holding out as the, the second option. We're going to do this with only our votes in reconciliation and just ram it through. Well, if that if you have that option, you don't negotiate, right? You, you hold out for, for everything you want and, and then you go nowhere. So uh, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that if you refuse to negotiate, you're going to end up having to do it on your own votes. And, and we're sort of in that kind of a box right now. Mm -hmm. With the, the findings of that study in mind, what are the guardrails that policymakers should keep in mind when trying to achieve uh, an economically beneficial infrastructure bill, for, first for spending and then second for the pay force? Well, I think um, you, you want to identify not numbers, two trillion, one trillion. We've heard, you know, we're going to have a trillion dollar infrastructure bill under, for, for years under President Trump. And now we've got this two trillion dollar infrastructure bill. Identify needs. What is it that we need to do? And uh, there are some genuine infrastructure needs. Um, some of them are national in scope. For example, uh, a, a 21st century air traffic control system would be a, a tremendous piece of infrastructure, infrastructure for the U.S. National in scope. Federal government should be doing things like that. So identify needs. And then once you've got those needs and, and, and you come up with a price tag for them, raise them to the extent possible, uh, finance them with user fees so that the people who are inflicting damage on the infrastructure, if you're driving a heavy truck across the interstates, you are paying for the damage you do and providing the revenue necessary to not just build it, but maintain it. That, that, that's always been the key. We, we, we use user fees with ports. We use user fees um, in the form of a gas tax traditionally on, on roads and, and highways. And, and we could do that as much as possible and then turn to things like the corporate tax only if necessary. And, and, and so we've got it in the wrong order. We're going to the wrong financing thing first. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot to be played out in this whole debate. And I'm sure that we'll talk about it a lot more in the weeks and months coming forward. I mean, I already saw progressive Democrats are saying this isn't even enough. So I'm sure this is going to be a, a moving plan. So we'll be talking about it quite a bit. So one of the problems that with the American Jobs Plan is it's, it's everything and nothing. Like if it really was just infrastructure, there are probably some things that that the progressive Democrats would like to have done. Like, you know, we need more on roads and bridges. OK, then you could do that. But because it's sort of infrastructure and sort of healthcare and sort of 
climate clean energy and sort of workforce development and 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 a, a fair amount of industrial policy in the manufacturing sector, it in the end, none of those pieces is satisfying to the people who care about it. Mm-hmm. Speaking of climate policy, let's turn to that for the final half of the, the podcast today. You mentioned in a recent Daily Dish, climate change policy was supposed to be one of the Biden administration's preeminent areas of focus, yet it has largely been missing in action um, in the first months of the of the administration. First, what have we seen from the administration at this point? Well, I mean, they they rejoined, announced immediately they would rejoin the Paris Agreement, um, uh, something that is more symbolic than real, in my view. That that agreement has has never had any enforcement uh, mechanisms, and, and it's a, it's a symbolic gesture on all participating. Um, so they did that, um, and then. They threw a couple hundred billion into American Jobs Plan. They threw some money into the um, American Rescue Plan. So they've, they've spent some money, but but they haven't announced a framework. They haven't said, here's how we're going to do uh, uh, what America needs to do on the climate front. They haven't announced a goal. So I've been waiting for that. Like, you know, what's the target? What, what are the mechanisms? What are we actually going to do? And, and that has yet to be really laid out. Mm-hmm. Speaking of goals this week, uh, Senator Markey of Massachusetts and Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez of New York reintroduced the Green New Deal. A few years ago, AF estimated the cost of this proposal. Can you remind us what this package is all about and the impact? So remember, this is uh, the Green New Deal, and it's part green. So it's things like let's get to a, a zero emissions electricity grid. Let's go to net zero carbon uh, emissions by by 2035 and some fairly ambitious things, but it's also very New Deal-esque. And so it has free college in there for people and it's it's got an enormous amount of sort of social welfare spending, sort of guaranteed jobs and things like that. So it was $95 trillion or something. I forget our exact number. Um, uh, and it's because it's, it's sweeping in its scope. It's a revolution of of the so- size and scale of governments and, and the targets are extraordinarily ambitious. I mean, it, it, we, it's one thing to say we're going to have a zero emissions national uh, electricity grid. We don't have a national electricity grid. We've never been able to get the the rights away to connect the regional grids that we have. And so to say we're going to get one that's zero emissions, we've got to get one first. This is all, all uh, a lot of things that, that have really never been done in the U.S. Yeah. The first round of the Green New Deal, uh, I believe, was a non-binding resolution. So there wasn't really like any you know mandatory things in there. Is this the same thing now? Are we? Is it the same thing that we're dealing with? And where could this go? And how could it impact climate policy? So it it, it is a non-binding House resolution, a non-binding Senate resolution. Um, they will likely be brought to the floor, voted on, and passed. And so it'll be the sense of the House and the sense of the Senate that we need to do this. It's not going to do anything uh, in and of itself, but it does push the Democratic Party. It's been pushing this White House to the left. There's no question. These are aggressive climate um, uh, targets. These are aggressive social policies. And we're seeing that in the American Jobs Plan, American Family Plan. We're going to see more. Uh, And we're hearing the talk about setting a target for the U.S. That's an extraordinarily aggressive target. Um, In in the Obama years, the target was let's reduce emissions from the 2005 levels by about 26 to 28 percent. So take them down by about a quarter uh, all indications are the White House will announce uh, tomorrow or very, very shortly that the target is going to be 50 percent reduction. So doubling uh, the the target, that's very ambitious and, and very aggressive. 
Yeah, I was going to ask that my, my follow up was going to be um, which of the Green New Deal policies do you anticipate the administration will pursue? And perhaps more important, what what's one will they uh, not pursue that they should? Um, so the biggest thing with the Green New Deal is not that it's green. It's how you how you do it. And so do you by command and control and regulation and, and dictate at the federal level, get the, the zero emissions power grid? Well, that, that's the approach in the Green New Deal, and, and that's a very expensive way to go. There's, there's a lot of economic literature on, okay, can we use a price mechanism, typically either a carbon tax or a cap and trade system, something where you know the value of, of reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions by one ton. You can figure that out and, and allow people in the economy to respond to that price. So, you know, things that I have typically bought are very carbon intensive. They're going to be more expensive. And I'm going to think, hmm, I don't need as much of this or I can buy a substitute that that has less carbon in it and it'll be cheaper. And in the process, we send the signal that we're not going to produce as much of that because the demand's gone away and we're going to produce more of these other cleaner things. And the whole economy gets greener. And and you don't have to know how it gets done. Everybody for themselves figures it out. And, and that's a very efficient way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and, and sort of uh, institute uh, a climate policy. The, the regulatory approach, the one that says, you know, we're going to get rid of any product whose carbon intensity is over 48% in this, in this sector. I mean, that's a sort of regulatory fiat. Or we're going to have energy efficiency standards for every dishwasher and every dryer and every washer, and, you know, things like that. That approach has proven to be much more expensive. And so uh, the objective, the same, how you do it differs. And that's that's really the important thing right now. Mm -hmm. It just, just occurred to me a little, but you know, we take the infrastructure plan, we take this Green New Deal plan. It seems like they put these labels on them, but then they throw all of these other projects in there. So yep. strategically, is this something new that's happening or has this been happening in Congress for, for a while now? And what do you make of the approach? Uh, you know, this is not entirely new, that's for sure. Um, and, you know, it, it always um, uh, graded on my economist soul, that's not a contradiction in terms, um, that, uh, that like when I was on the McCain campaign, you know, we come up with a policy that I thought was just a good policy. And they'd say, well, how many jobs? How many jobs? How many jobs are we going to create with this? And so you hear a lot about jobs, that that's a the way you sell it politically. And that's not often the economic reality, but yeah. we do Gotcha. Well, Doug, thanks again for joining us for this conversation. It was great as always. And um, before I let you go, for the record, I want to say that I also miss working in person with <laughs> not just the fun parts about being in the office. I couldn't let that stand without saying something. <laughs> uh, well, with any luck, we'll edit your uh, your caveat out. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, thanks again, Doug. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.